the ancient Japanese considered the go-board to be a microcosm of the universe. Although, when it is empty, it appears to be simple and ordered. The possibilities of gameplay are endless. They say no two Go games have ever been alike, just like snowflakes. So, the Go board actually represents an extremely complex and chaotic universe. And that is the truth of our world, Max. It can't be easily summed up with math. There is no simple pattern. But as a Go game progresses, the possibilities become smaller and smaller. The board does take on order. Soon all the moves are predictable. That's so, so? So maybe, even though we're not sophisticated enough to be aware of it, there is a pattern, an order, underlying every Go game. Hey everybody, thank you for tuning in to Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. I'm your host, Jeremy. This week we are talking with Glenn Peters about the history and, I guess, current evolution of the game Go. We do everything in this podcast from discussing its history, its use in film, everything from, I guess, classic post-war Hollywood to stuff like Ron Howard and American indie film to anime and others. We also talk about how, if you are curious, and if you live in the Portland area, you can stop by one of their meetings and learn how to play too. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Glenn. Hello everybody, we are back. This is Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. I'm Jeremy, I'm here with Glenn. Hello. And Glenn here has um, very graciously volunteered his time to come over to the our kitchen studio here, slightly modified from our office studio, such as it was, to talk to uh, talk about well, let's just say your history and the, the the game of Go. Yes, thank you for having me. Well, the the game of Go is played on a uh, well, it's played on a wooden board, mm-hmm. and that's about eighteen by eighteen inches uh, on either side. So it's about what like a script. Where did that go? We have a, like a Scrabble board for a comparison. Yes, but I'm not using. Well, y- yeah, I didn't. I didn't really use that because I didn't think it would have the right sound, and oh, I figured it really wouldn't have the right look for a podcast. So I just, I just left that okay, know, in the other room for now. But in, uh, so envision a Scrabble board, which is you know a I guess a game board that is approximately 18 inches square with grids. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. The tournament size, the standard size of a board would be 19 by 19 lines. And since you play in the intersections and you also play on the edges of the board, then that, that comes out to you. You get to play on each each of the 19 lines. So the, the coordinate system works out that way. And it also works out as a benefit because you get to have a center line that is a single line down the center of the board, and that helps orient you. If you've ever seen a board, it will also have a series of dots. Those are called star points, and those will be the, where the handicap stones are placed. And so, you, uh, folks, or at least in Portland, you'd kind of you'd walk around, you'd see what people playing this in the say, like the tea gardens, and it's the or where else would you actually see this in public? I wonder. Well, the Chinese Garden. Um, we have I I do a, a I teach there uh, once a month, first Sunday of the month, and we also have a big group at Powell's. 
mm-hmm. and we play on the weekends at the Lucky Lab on Hawthorne, which is a great place for uh, for board games. Yes, yes, that's been for actually about geez over ten years now. Kind of thinking, man, it's been a while. Yeah, we've been there for for a while, and we've had other people that yeah we, yeah lots of other other board game players there too. Um, so the the actual <clears throat> so the game itself, you would say it's pretty much it's it for a close American. I.e. me audience it, it was the it's the game it is the um, Chinese slash Japanese game that looks like Othello in terms of you have the you know grids of white and black round stones or gems and stones stones it's for, yeah for for go it would be stones and the stones are placed on on the intersections and you uh, providing a little foley there. It if, reads. If, yep. <laughs> it reads out quite well. Good. Um, so they're placed on the intersections, which gives you the benefit of being able to see the lines that are coming out. If you place a single stone on the board, mm-hmm. then you'll get four lines coming out of that stone. Now, for that stone to be captured, you'd have to surround all four lines as opposed to Othello, where you'd just be getting two of the endpoints of a single line. Right. And two-dimensional versus one-dimensional. Right. So if you have multiple stones of the same color that are touching along those lines, then those form a group of, you know, of multiple stones, and that can be pretty much any shape that's orthogonal because it's only connecting along the straight lines. Mm-hmm. And again, if that whole group gets, its, gets surrounded on each of the lines, then that group, whole group gets captured and removed from the board. The object of the game is to surround territory, to surround empty territory as as your own, and the game ends when both players pass. And so when both players have passed, then you count up the empty spaces on the board minus the prisoners that you put, that you, that have been captured. How long does an average game usually last? And a casual game lasts something like 45 minutes. You know, it depends on the levels of the game and the and the and the the speed at which people play. I am an extremely fast player, mm-hmm. so my games will be 20 to 30 minutes depending on the speed of of my opponent. Um and but and on also some people getting around my level will will often play very long games because they want to just think about every move which i should be doing but where's the fun in that yeah it's it's a lot more fun to play maniacally and, and watch people just sort of stare and say how can you possibly play that fast uh, there you go how did you get involved in let's see what what actually what led you to uh to playing go of all sports or well, games as it were a friend of mine uh in high school brought over a game brought over a board because his father had taught him how to play, and, and we, he sort of taught me a couple of the rules. He didn't really understand all the rules, and I certainly didn't understand them at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, we we played what you know I can see in retrospect was a completely ridiculous game, where, yeah, <laughs> as what does kind of what just like pieces everywhere, kind of like throwing each other and or uh, like you know almost like plinko rules, we're thacking at each other. Right. There's a particular rule that prevents you from recapturing a previously captured board position. And we had just a whole field 
of these shapes where we were capturing back and forth and it was just going back and forth in waves. And uh, so you were almost like playing it like like Othello. Like Othello? Well, no, because this 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 makes a a, a pattern. It, okay. I mean, yeah. Much cooler looking than Othello. Yeah, it's it's it was just a, a an alternating black and white pattern that that I don't think you would be able to have in Othello either because you you would you wouldn't you, well you wouldn't have the empty spaces for one thing That's and true. you wouldn't have the uh, or at least not as many I don't, yeah I played Othello but I'm not very familiar with it at this point somewhere I still have a a little pocket travel Othello uh, received for a family road trip in 1987. Yeah, my <clears throat> I remember back in late high school I had a computer version of Othello and I did I did crank it up to the maximum level and I did beat it but uh, that's I don't think I've played it since. What, what more can you do? Yeah. So uh, you pretty much so high school you, your high school was your first exp- your first taste of it as it were. Uh yes. And and I I should add that that uh, Othello is a very common uh comparison in that Every time somebody plays, somebody people somebody will walk by and say, "Are you playing Othello?" And so that becomes a sort of a common joke among uh, among people. But yeah, I, I played. Um, I didn't. I, I played in high school. This this was in New England, mm-hmm. and uh, my friend's father was a, a fairly strong player, and he formed a club, and started. And and I started to go to that, and that's where I, I really started to get playing against people of his strength and stronger and uh and then continued that until i went off to college and uh, where where there weren't really a lot of people to play in college where i went to but uh i went up to umass and and played somebody there a couple times this was like what umass like late 80s early 90s or yeah yeah circa 30 30 years ago what led you let's see what drew you to what drew you to go as opposed or i should say what what other games were you playing at the time like either board game types or like video game stuff or even like you know pen and paper rpg or or anything or what kind of led you into this uh this particular vice well i was a big D &D player um but i don't think that particularly led me into this Mm. um i was a big chess player I was on the chess club in high school around the same when when I got introduced to go and uh, I wasn't especially good but uh you know I was probably moderately you know strong for that particular club just the high school club mm-hmm. and uh yeah I, I <clears throat> my friend introduced this to me and he was and it, and it really really stuck you know he actually wrote in his yearbook he was like, I, I think you're going to be good at this game you know so <laughs> and I am, you know, and, and it's sort of the thing where, like, everybody that knows me knows that I know, I, you know, that I play this game, and the people who don't play know that I'm I'm kind of good to the point where it's no fun for anybody who doesn't play the game to play me. And, and yet, you know, I also know professional players to whom, you know, the difference in rank between myself and the top professional player is, is basically equivalent or i'm about midway between the and a beginner and a top professional in terms of the ranking system and and i should probably describe the ranking system sure which is it starts um it's it's very similar to a, a karate ranking system if you except that it has a much broader range 
And you so, don't get the cool belt. And I and you don't get the cool belt, yeah. and, and that's the worst part. I, I I need more belts, but uh, or little cloison pins that you get from that you would you know similar as I would rank up around that when I was in my favored pastime of the era of visiting various hard rock cafes around the uh, around the nation, because it was nineteen ninety ninety one and I was you know dumb little fifteen year old you know white suburban kid who didn't know better. Yeah. I, I actually do have a few pins from the Go Congresses, which I could talk about in a bit. But the uh, the ranking system starts around thirty thirty five Q, depending. I think they've they've shifted it down a little bit. And as you get stronger, then the points the the, the ranking gets lower numerically until you get up to about one Q, which and then from that you would go up to one Don, which is Shodan which is basically the same as a black belt in karate. And that's that's about the level where I'm at. Also a system shock reference. Yeah. <laughs> and um, don't worry if you don't get that joke ladies and gentlemen, never mind, yeah. Yes, well, it'll get you. So and then from there you can go up to, you know, that, and that and that's amateur and then you go up to about 9 don amateur and then Nine Don Amateur is something like One Don Professional because there are a bunch of professionals out there who, you know, when you when you say a professional, it's not just somebody who makes money at the game. It's somebody who has studied usually since childhood to become incredibly good at the game. Mm-hmm. And they're just on another level. And then, you know, and then the professional levels go up from One Don Professional to Nine Don Professional. So there, and that's and that's the top rank, you know. And then there's there's a few title holders which are exceptional in their own way in that, in holding a title. What's the what is the, what's the best title you've ever heard someone achieve or referred to by? Well, the uh, the Honinbo title is probably the most prestigious. Honinbo. Honinbo, yeah. The um, it's it's one of the great uh, house one of the great teaching families or houses uh, styles. Yeah, yeah. There, there's there are certain styles that that'll be played. Although you know, I think it's these days there aren't as many house secrets as there used to be hundreds or or a thousand years ago. Mm. And some of the some of the great stories are, are in reference to those. Yeah, blame Wikipedia. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was Wikipedia and the fact that every article, every every game is recorded and published, and everybody can see it. So, yeah. How does um, you mentioned that you were you were a um, you were well big enough chess player at the time in high school? How I just say, how did you? What drew you uh, from? What drew you into this game? From you know that made you switch, as it were. Or what was it about the what was it about the, this particular game, or I don't know, was it like you know it's Providence or Milieu or I'm not sure. I I think that it may have. I think in my case, there's probably a degree of just aptitude that I that I had, but it's which which is part of what's different about the games. Go can be a much more organic game. It's a much more shape-oriented game because you've got such a larger field and 
you don't it's not as much about each one of the pieces Mm -hmm. all of the pieces are the same there's no distinction between any pieces and you (laughs) that didn't help uh writing down notes does not particularly so each one of the pieces can be sacrificed as as well as any of the others and in fact you can lose a very large group in the beginning and get a very good result not only in terms of psychology and that you've made your opponent you know overconfident but mm. you can also just get a very good strategic result by sacrificing a large group whereas if you know in chess you can get a good result by sacrificing your queen but you you'd, you probably know exactly what's going to happen next if you know if, at, at that level where Okay, I'm sacrificing my queen, and then it's going to be checkmate in you know, X moves or something. So you think it's it, it, each game has a bit more volatility than you know than your uh, than the than think like the stereotypical like high level chess games or I I never played chess. I was I preferred checkers. Mm-hmm. Uh, bec- again, because it's it's the um, you know, I don't know, far more colorful and far less complicated. And I am, I can be very, very bad at war games. So, uh, no Kriegspiel for me. Um, so this is, so this is kind of, at, at this point, I, I don't think it, have I, I think I have tried some online go, but I've never actually played it in real life. Well, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> the, Sorry, I lost the thread of that. What was the, the, both the of us. just the the difference in that? The, the I guess just, the, um, just relating the different kind of like wanted to just talking about the talking about the game and what in particular what characteristic or what, you know what about the game itself? This uh, because every game is you interacting with a defined set of systems what was it about this particular game that drew you in you know what attributes what characteristics of it that got you into the point of you know of wanting to stick with it over time yeah well i think that it it has you know i said earlier that it was that it was organic and i think that that's that's a lot of it in particular my my particular approach to it is in learning the different shapes and recognizing what the different shapes, you know, are, are going to, what the ramifications of those are, whether they're going to be good defensive shapes or whether they're going to be trouble later on. And that's a lot less relevant in chess. In chess, it's it's a lot about reading out each one of the individual moves. Whereas in Go, you can just sort of set up a lot of different, you know, places all over the board where it's going to have different areas of influence and effect and then you keep playing on later on and then eventually those are going to have some sort of effect one player there's one game that i played maybe 10 years ago where a friend of mine keeps bringing up where she captured a few of my groups or cut them off and one of my groups cut them off and, and thought that she had completely captured them and then i sort of chased another group all the way around the board and then came around to that first set of stones that that she thought she had captured and then saved them by by doing that it's just that sort of thing and where then she, and then she threw a bottle at your head because of that 
Well, she wanted to. She has wanted to every time she has seen me since then. Oh, okay, good. It's good to have history. Yeah, so it's it's the scope of the game is is one you know one of the one of the big things, and this is one of the reasons why it's been so hard for computers to actually you know catch up to Replicate. people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is <clears throat> there was a famous series of games that happened just uh, just earlier this year, where a computer called AlphaGo had which came from the DeepMind project, which Google project Google purchased. And wasn't that an IBM thing? Or am I thinking of something else? You may be thinking of Deep Blue. Ah, okay. So they had this game. It defeated a high-level professional in uh, October of last year. And everybody was very impressed by this, but then they were sort of like, well, yeah, but he's not the top professional. He's not the, the best person in the world. And surely the best person in the world can do better. And so they had this <clears throat> very highly publicized match. A lot of the Go players that I know, including myself, stayed up late to watch these matches because they were happening in Seoul. Mm. And they took uh, Lee Sedol, who is arguably the best human player in the world right now, and they gave they had a five match five game match played against him, and then they played the first game, and you know he he was expecting to win, and he did not, and uh, everybody well not, not, people weren't entirely shocked. Some people were shocked, but not everybody was entirely shocked, but. Uh, the computer went on to win the second and then the third match and then there was sort of this sense among the go playing community of well i guess it's over now yeah yeah looking this up on the wikipedia entry there's an ex- there's a whole section just entitled responses to the 2016 victory against yeah. lee solbo <laughs> so lee sadal so it's um it's um you know you know when it's uh, you know it's epic enough when it has its own uh, wiki subcategory yeah but in the fourth game he did manage to win and there was there was much rejoicing, as they say. Yay! <laughs> and uh, although he he did lose again in the fifth round, there was at least still some hope for humanity. And and one of the reasons that we can do this that 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 humans have been insurmountable for so long is just the sheer you know as I say scope of the game that the number of possible moves is something like more than the number of atoms in the universe and there's I, i've seen the number written down somewhere and it was a it was a very very long number in like, addition like to two to the two to two two times ten to the 30th or something or something on that order but uh yeah it's probably probably right on that yeah it's on it, that screen. it would not be very small no All right, and on that note, let us take a break, and we will be right back talking to Glenn about Go, uh, his particular history, its (laughs) attempts to uh, get a computer to beat a human, and what happened when that finally happened, and a lot of other stuff. So stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, as if you had a choice. Actually, the last thing I think we were mentioning were the modern AI efforts to defeat the human Go player. Yes. And uh, game four was won by the human, and game five was, was another loss. And, and they're still talking about you know, doing, doing rematches 
before that. And this um, this did happen this year, did it not? Like yeah, this yeah, year. Okay. yeah. It was just just this earlier this year. This year being twenty sixteen, by the way, for you know, for future generations who somehow discovered this weird syndicated MP three on some dead server. Yes, I always appreciate the uh, the dates, and that'll actually come up. Um, you know, if you go into the if we go into some of the history of sure. the game, the game is somewhere between three and 5,000 years old, and it was invented in China. One of the legends is that it was invented by the sage King Yao to teach his son discipline mm-hmm. and military tactics, which goes along with how the game is often applied to a military battlefield situation. And so, yep, lost the thread. Uh, History of the game, talking about how it was developed by the um, king or emperor, probably emperor by that point. Right, emperor. And he, he, he may have been legend i have to i'd have to look him up Apoc- more, it, possibly apocryphal possibly not right as an origin to the game it's almost certainly apocryphal right yeah you know print but, the print the legend right but regardless it's it's a very old game and it came over to japan somewhere around you know 1000 ad mm. and so for a millennia it's a millennium. It's been basically a Japanese game, and the name Go is derived from the Japanese name of Ego. And most of the and most of the terms that we use are also Japanese names: the Tsuji, the Gobon, and the Fusaki. All all these terms that even Chinese and Korean players use, you know generally speaking, are, are all the Japanese names because they were the best at it for so long. And how do you think the game how do you think the game fared during World War Two? Well the game did reasonably well I mean the the game itself did reasonably well during World War Two. I think it spread. Um in terms of movie representations, uh there's there's a movie called Heaven Help Us Mr. Allison which has a great scene where I think it's Robert Mitchum's character goes off hunting for supplies and he goes into the Japanese camp and two of the Japanese soldiers walk back to where he was scrounging for supplies and they sit down with a go board and they start playing a game. Sure. Yeah. You're not, you're in middle, you're in, you know, you're in war territory. Let's right. Uh, time for a deck of cards. Yeah. So he's hiding on like on a shelf somewhere in the shadows and they're playing a game and then they they finally play the game and they're you know drinking and and then they you see one guy who's like ah oh, i give up and and then the other's like oh no another game another game and you see robert mitchell so like, oh god <laughs> and and so yeah that, that's one one cultural representation there's also a movie called the go masters which is a joint Japanese and Chinese just epic hmm. about that's that's set during World War Two that has a kid who is this prodigy of a player and he gets taken 
I think he gets taken from China to Japan before World War II and is is taught by this this one guy there and and left by and you know, and has to leave his father still in China. Mm. And so this the the whole thing is just this this sprawling epic movie of these two families and then the well yeah won't get very very dramatic sprawling and, dramatic attic about the history of the game oh, yeah because I'm, I'm curious if the um much like uh america during our during our during the, the the couple of world wars over here we had you know hell even during um the same the, the same kind of um habit popped up later but they over here they would rename they would rename it like common food you know as i said they, you know they wouldn't call it sauerkraut they'd call it german cabbage because you know the germans were the enemy or something so i'm kind of, i was always curious if you had you know you have you know chinese and korean players during world war ii playing against uh you know playing a game that was now dominated by um the invading um, the occupying army I don't know of any of that. I mean, I know that in modern times, Mao had had basically, you know, he'd he'd sort of wiped out a lot of the intellectuals, but he was also responsible for supporting one of the the strong players. Uh, I've read his book, Nai Weiping, um, who became a a very strong player in, you know, in, in the 70s thereabouts and so so yeah actually supported as a matter of national pride you know um and and it was around this time that a lot of the i think a lot of the japanese players had tend to you know fall away from from playing so much and and so by the time i started playing it was basically known as an old man's game in japan mm-hmm. and Culture so, is a weird thing. Yeah, yeah. So, and it wasn't until uh, that they came out with Hikaru no Go, which is a manga and anime series that really helped popularize it again. It really, not only in Japan, but also here. It had you know, this, this, this wide cast. It's, for those who are not familiar, this would have to be the the main recommendation for for the uh, podcast Hikaru 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 no go Hikaru no go and Just look it up real quick I, and I apologize Hikaru. for any of my pronunciation no here go. and the um... which is the story of a young boy who gets possessed by the spirit of a great go master who according to the story is basically the same guy that played the games of Honinbo Shusaku, who is just the, the legendary player of Go history. Gotcha. Okay. Apparently, yeah, the manga hit about 98. The anime series started around uh, about three years later. Yeah, yeah. And all of the characters in that, it's interesting, all the characters that are listed in there are fictional. A lot of the games that are actually played are actually real historical games, and uh, except that there's there's one person's name that I caught on rereading it recently, who was actually somebody that I had played, a professional player that I'd, I'd played during my 
my years in the going to the Go Congresses. That's different. Um, yeah. You've mentioned the the Congresses before. Can you talk about the Congresses and say? Because I, I keep hearing the word, I keep hearing Congress, and I and I and you know, because I'm modern dork, I think I'm kind of curious. How does a Congress uh, match up with a con? Well, there's a lot less cosplay. We have. Well, then what's the point? Well, you get to play all the time. Hey, if it you know if it don't have um, you know if it doesn't have camera bait, dressing up in themed and badly licensed characters. Um, well, I, I confess I haven't been to one for for about eight years now, so oh, okay, maybe yeah. they're doing that now. And there is a merchandise table, so there, there, there are a- merchandise rooms, so you can you can buy a lot of stuff, which I always did. And um, so, yeah, the cons are the congresses. You're, you're you're polluting my mind with your terminology. the The congresses are in a different city each year. There, there well, there's. There's the U.S. Congress, which is the only one that I've managed to go to. Where there's a European Congress, and and I'm sure there are, well, there's there's one in, in uh, Canada too, I think. And um, so we, there's several hundred people that go to these, most of whom participate in the in the U.S. Open, which is a game that that's played every day in the morning, and that's basically the the big game that you have the big tournament that every it pits everybody against each other. You know, there there are different bands of players and you know from and 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 you'll have at the top you'll have professional player level players and then at the bottom you'll have you know just just beginners who are also starting out. And and that helps keep all the ratings even. How does the scene? Have you ever seen any of the? I believe these are. I mean, it, they're they're streamable now, but once any of the documentaries that that, that came out from like '05 on, after um, about like say national uh, conventions for American um, board games, you know, like there was the documentary, the wordplay documentary that came out about, about the New York Times crossword. And at one point followed around several people who'd came, you know, who came together in, I think it was Stanford to play. And there's a later, there was a later one that all that focused on Scrabble players. Have you seen any of those? And I'm just kind of curious if the, if the, in terms of, um, national gatherings of dedicated aficionados coming together to play it together. I have not seen those. I I probably should, but uh, I I think there's one going on with Go that that you know somebody's doing some crowdfunding to try and get that published. But no, I I, I don't think we that we've seen anything like that. It, hmm. It's a little bit much. It's a little bit too much of a niche, you know, topic because while you know when when I started to play, there were basically maybe a dozen books in english and and now there are hundreds you know easily and you know there was just those those few movie references you know which which i'd mentioned a couple of them and now you know you see it in reasonably often you know it'll it'll it appeared in an episode of what was it criminal minds when the when the first episodes of of one of those one of those types of shows that I have never seen an episode of Criminal Minds, so I could yeah, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, 
but they, there was an episode where they they found the home of the killer. What kind of game is that? In China, it's called Wei Chi. Here we call it Go. It's considered to be the most difficult board game ever conceived. Chairman Mao required his generals to learn it. It also looks like he's playing himself. How can you tell? And they looked at the Go board and they said, oh, I can see from this that this guy really is a is a real you know violent mind because he he you know plays he plays basically the way I do you know on the board. This might provide an advantage actually. Go is considered to be a particularly psychologically revealing game. There are profiles for every player: the conservative point counter, the aggressor, the finesser. What kind of player is Lisbon? Extreme aggressor. And you know this. That does not translate to real life, I don't think. No, well, but, it's, uh, it, yeah, if it's a, it's a modern it's a modern American TV procedural, um, right, right? Why be based in reality when you can print a legend? No, no, indeed. One of the things that uh, you know I'd, I'd mentioned before the movie The Go Masters, which is you know the movie from, from well. The movie itself is from the 70s. And when the movie... These days, I ask people if they've seen the movie A Beautiful Mind, which came out in 2000 or something. I had just come back from the uh, the Denver Go Congress in 2000, so I, that's my, my frame of reference, where I had met uh, the American professional Janice Kim. And she knew that I had a copy of this movie, The Go Masters, which is fairly rare. I had, I had bought it on VHS. I was going to say, bootleg, is it like bootleg, uh, bootleg tape or? It was not bootleg. Really? It was just, it was just rare. Oh, wow. It was, I, I, I know of three copies that were in Portland and uh, one of them was a trilogy. One of them was another Go player up in, actually up in Vancouver and one was me. So. Um, Dubbed or subbed? Uh... I think it was subbed. Pretty oh, sure it was subbed. Actually, thank God. Yeah. At least so, you know. You know. At least uh, some trends of the '90s never died. Right. Right. They started making this movie, A Beautiful Mind, and they contacted her as a consultant, and she contacted me because she knew that I had a copy of this movie. So I sent her my copy of the movie. She bundled that up with some boards and some equipment for for them, and. The cast of that movie, including Russell Crowe, watched my copy, my VHS copy of The Go Masters, to actually prepare for the go scenes in A Beautiful Mind. All right, who's next? Yeah, I've played enough go for one day. I, 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 I hate this thing. Cowards, what? all of you. None of you rise to meet my challenge? Please, please. Come on, Bender. Whoever wins, Saul does his laundry all semester. Does that seem unfair to anyone else? Not at all. <laughs> Look at him. Ash, taking a reverse constitutional. I'm hoping to extract an algorithm to define the movement. Oh. So good. Hey, Nash, I thought you dropped out. You ever gonna go to class? Or... Classes will dull your mind. Destroy the potential for authentic creativity. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Nash is gonna stun us all with his genius. Which is another way of saying he doesn't have the nerve to compete. Scared? Terrified. Mortified. Petrified. Stupefied by you. Which 
then turned out to be kind of terrible in in the way that anything is if you are an expert in the thing that they are talking about in a movie. No starch. Pressed and folded. Let me ask you something, John. Be my guest, Martin. Ender and Saul here correctly completed Alan's proof of prose conjecture. Adequate work without innovation. Oh, I'm, I'm flattered. You flattered? Flattered. And I've got two weapons briefs under security review by the DOD. Derivative drivel. But Nash achievements? Zero. I'm a patient man, Martin. Is there an actual question coming? What if you never come up with your original idea? How will it feel when I'm chosen for Wheeler and you are not? Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because in Hikaru no Go, they solved this by using actual game recordings of real famous games. So they knew that the games made sense, you know, to some degree. Whereas, as far as I can tell in A Beautiful Mind, they just sort of, you know, I don't quite know what they were doing because it he he let a group get captured and he said, "Oh, this game is terrible. I, I can't I can't deal with this. This is this is the worst game ever." What if you lose? You should not have won. I had the first move. My my play was perfect. The hubris of the defeated. The game is flawed. Gentlemen, the great John Nash. Well, it, so, so it shows up in American Mind, um, portrayed about as accurately as one could expect. For I checked it out. It is uh, released. Film came out in December of 01. Um, directed by... Was it directed by was it Ron, Ron Howard? Howard yeah, think, directed yeah. By, yeah, directed by Ron Howard, uh, partially written by Kiva Goldsman. So, yeah. Yeah, well, another uh, famous at the time, or at least prominent project uh, uh, movie that, that had go in it was the movie Pi. The ancient Japanese considered the go board to be a microcosm of the universe. Although when it is empty, it appears to be simple and ordered. The possibilities of gameplay are endless. Which just had a, had another wonderful scene where he's playing, the main character is playing with his mentor and they're playing very seriously on a go board. And I know they also consulted, you know, serious players for this. And he just places a move very clearly, close up move, right against a giant wall of his territory that's already a couple stones thick. Which, you know, if if you know anything about the game, you know that that makes no sense whatsoever. Just, it's, it's basically it, a, yeah, a, a, it, it a looks, negative move. Yeah, it looks cool, and that's all the sense that it needs to make. Yes, yes. Yeah, if if we go back, you know, I was mentioning some of the famous games that they used in Hikaru no Go. Okay. And some of those, some, you know, the, the, some of these have, have famous names. There's the... The Blood Coughing Game, which is also sometimes known as the, the Blood Vomiting Game, yeah. was played by... Literal or figurative? Well, that's the thing. There was uh, the 
Honinbo Jowa, who is at the time, this is this is eighteen hundreds. In I was fact, say, let's, let, let, let us date these uh, these games of antiquity. Yeah, this is played in eighteen thirty five. In fact, um, in China or Japan, this would have been played in Japan. Okay, so yeah, so before so before they got opened up. All right, yeah, and. So there was there was a bunch of rivalry between these two houses, and they they decided to have this game to settle it. So Honinbajo was the, this really famous strong player. Not really, fairly. I won't get into how famous he is. He was he was very prominent. Famous enough, that. yeah. And his opponent was Akaboshi Intetsu, and basically they played for a few days. For a few days, and, and Intetsu was this really great up-and-coming player from the, the rival house. And they played for a few games, and Joa played this move that, you know, was later said that he was unfairly coached by ghosts. That he was somehow inspired by, you know, spirits to play this move. And... As opposed to being fairly guided by spirits to play. Yeah. Right, right. Like, like you are, I suppose. Right. And Intetsu just collapses on the board and coughs blood all over the board. It's and, a hell of a game if you if you make your opponent hemorrhage in the process of it. Yeah, yeah. And and then he, he died two months later. So 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 that's one of the famous games. There's also the ear reddening move, which is played by uh, Honinbo Shusaku, but not when he was Honinbo. It was when he was a 17 year old kid, and he he got behind in a game, and then he thought for a while, and then he played this move that seemed to be sort of out of nowhere. It seemed to, didn't seem to be directly related to something, but it was one of those moves that you know a professional would do that sets up something that 40 moves from there would then save the game for him. And his opponent was strong enough to recognize that this is what happened and his ears, he got really angry and his ears reddened, you know, in the game. So that's the ear reddening move. Cue, cue the close-up shot of steam escaping, yeah. Yes, yes. And the other game, uh, there's happened on August 6th, 1945 which may ring a bell the a, a, a date of uh, minor significance yes so they were having a a match between uh Hashimoto Utaro and Iwamoto Karu who Iwamoto Karu also is wonderful for having brought go to the west he helped found the Seattle Go Center and and wrote at least one book in Eng- or that got translated to English, so he was a great promoter of it. So they settled down to have this game, they were set to have the third match played, and at 8.15, Little Boy dropped on Hiroshima and actually knocked over the referee who was observing the match. This is, this, this is five kilometers away, and they had actually been playing in the city, and they moved out because... They were worried about a bomb attack, but not this bomb. Right. And which, although uh, I will say, um, 
Five clicks is only 3.1 miles, as anybody who ran high school cross-country can remember. Oh, and here comes Miss Happy. Hello, Miss Happy. And off she goes. Okay. Time to time to investigate the outside, the outdoors. Yes. Uh, the bomb bomb drops. Little boy drops on the sixth of August, about five kilometers from the game location. Right. Knocks over the ref. So and and then they just sort of put the board back together, and the referee gets back up, and they probably clean up some of the glass that had broken over on, on onto the board, and they just sort of continue playing the game as refugees start coming in from the city so that that that's one of the the prominent ones that's a um yeah that's a um that is certainly one way to uh to time stamp your uh your your epic game yes yes what wound up what wound up happening to the three of them the participants and the referee like long lives or like or like eventual like leukemia problems I think, I, I, I don't know. I, I'd have to look them up individually. I think Iwamoto lasted for a while because, like I say, he did he did go on to, you know, to the West to help promote Go. Okay. And he's, he's, he's a big reason why a, a lot of us are playing indirectly, you know, that are, that are playing today. I certainly have his book. Do you remember what was you mentioned Nai uh, Nai Wei Ping's books? Nai Wei Ping. Do you remember? Do you happen to remember what his book his book was called? I think it was called Nai Wei Ping on Go. It's a purple cover. That's what straight seems okay. Well, that's that's fairly straightforward. Let us paste that in. I'm on Go, and it's Nai Wei Ping at Sensei's Library. Oh, yeah, here so we go. Okay, yeah. Oh, there we go. Naiwei Ping on Go, Purple Cover, um, co-written by Sidney Yuan. Oh, yeah. Met him. Small world. So, <laughs> yes, the Go community is, you know, kind of small in, in, in some ways, especially, like, I'd, I'd been going to Go Congresses for nine years, so I made a point of, of meeting a lot of people. Uh, there, you know, there's a lot of professional players that I've met in, uh, as well as I think I said uh, I took lessons from mm-hmm. while I was at the at the Go Congresses might as well you're there yeah so in addition to the US Open at the Go Congresses they would also have different nights they would have different tournaments every night they would have uh, well the, the 9x9 which is a, a smaller version of the board which is you know the full size board is the 19 by 19 Nine by nine is like that kind of like speed go. Yeah, well, well, nine by nine can be speed go. You could you could play as fast as you want, but it's just a smaller version of the game, and it, the strategy is a little different. It's more more on tactics. And then there's they'd have thirteen by thirteen tournaments, which I I am not a fan of thirteen by thirteen because I feel if you want to make play a small game, you just play the nine by nine, and if you want to play a, a full game, then you play the nineteen by nineteen. Right, and I, I think don't, it, yeah, don't dick around. Go one or the other. Yeah, and I, I think it teaches bad strategy, or, or at least bad strategic habits to play on the thirteen by thirteen. So they, they have that, and then they have speed go, which was my favorite thing, and I got into the semifinals of that at least one year. Yeah, amphetamines. Yeah, and and well, or caffeine in my case, but uh, uh, but yeah, I actually only got knocked out of 
the semifinals that year by a guy who I asked what his rank was so we could set up the handicap. Right. And he told me, oh, I'm I'm X rank. So I, I gave him five stones or something like that. Right. And he beat me, which is, you know, not surprising. It was, he played well. But then a few days later at the awards tournament, he won at his level for a much different rank. So he actually told me that he needed more stones than he really deserved. So he, he won both his his band and the speed tournament division for <laughs> by by lying to me basically. Yeah, okay. So you got you got <laughs> look was, out for yeah, look out for snow jobs at these go congresses, ladies well, and gentlemen. Well I I don't think that's that's a uh I don't think that happens often. This is this is a rare case, mm. but uh, you know, it, I should have been able to find his badge or something like that. But certainly a memorable one. Yeah. So, yeah, that doesn't happen often. But the the, and then the the other thing that they have is Crazy Go, and the, the Crazy Go nights are just a whole bunch of different games, uh, different variations on the game, which translates as Donkey Go. Oh, okay. Dumb joke. Don't worry about it. Ah, oh, is it all right? They made a documentary about it. it was called King of Go. It's uh, for some reason Billy Mitchell is also in it, but it's don't worry about it. It's yeah. All right. Normally, I'm much better at references. So, Crazy Go will have things like the normal normal board size will be nineteen by nineteen. They will they will quadruple that and put four boards together and try and play a giant game of that which by essence have to, has to be a speed game they'll have games where people playing four different colors all at one time which means you have to do basically negotiations it's kind of like a game of diplomacy they have a game that is based uh, that, a, that a friend of mine put together that's on a crystal lattice so it's three-dimensional i was gonna say it wouldn't break out if we've you know, we, we live in a world where three-dimensional chess is a thing both fictional and reality when right. does a uh, three-dimensional go come into play I don't know. It would make it much harder to visualize because, you know, three-dimensional chess is really just multi-level chess. Correct. And since Go is... Already two dimensions. Yeah, it's two dimensions and it's already sufficiently complicated that it would be it would be very hard. It would, it's very hard to visualize even when you can see all the pieces. If you had, you know, like a 19 by 19 cube... That would be, you know, you just have visualization problems to start with. Right. Much less actually being able to reach in and move the pieces around. Right, right. We, yeah, there was, in this case, there was a special little holder that you would, you know, stick in, a little piece of wire that you would stick in to lift the pieces off their, mm-hmm. you know, off the corners and, and place them somewhere else. And that was that was very hard to see, you know, even if something was under threat of capture or Atari as which is the sort of the equivalent of check in in go and is in fact where what inspired the name of the company and that's why I always wear an Atari shirt when I'm teaching at the Chinese garden and there you go well actually that's a good um that's a good uh stopping point we're, uh stay tuned ladies and gentlemen when we come back we're going to talk about let's say go in Portland and the Pacific Northwest 
Hi, everybody. I am Jeremy. Uh, you are, of course, still listening to Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person, talking to Glenn here about Go, his particular history, as well as the global, more or less, history of the game. And I believe um, we had last talked about, I think, the classes that the classes in Go that you would that you teach at the Chinese Garden over over in the Pearl, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, the uh, the Lanzhou Chinese Garden. And I teach there the, the first Sunday of the month. And it's not really organized classes. It's, you know, whoever comes in, mm-hmm. I will I will teach. We have had, you know, usually it's it's just beginners. And every once in a while, I've had a, an extremely strong player, you know, wander in and sort of, sort of teach me. I was going to say, just, uh, you know, you get smoked right there, free of charge. Right, right. And, and, and that is, you know, always an honor. As long as I know it's going to happen, and the, you know, it's, no, nobody has really tried to surprise me with that. But in addition to teaching at the Chinese Garden, we have uh, a few festivals. There's there's a Mochitsuki uh, Japanese New Year's festival, which we have been presenting at for for a number of years, and we also have regular meetings of the Portland Go Club itself. Mm-hmm. We have Tuesday nights at Powell's downtown, and we have. Saturday and Sunday at the Lucky Lab in the afternoon, starting around 1 p.m. Mm-hmm. and and going on. Different from their, because I remember, the, I think their traditional, the Lucky Lab traditional board game night, that's where it was always, I think it was always Thursday night, but it's been years since I've been down there, so I cannot speak authoritatively on this. Yeah, I think I tried going to that once. So, yeah, we and we've got... Uh, there's a number of game, a, num- a number of groups and clubs that meet all around the country. If you go to usgo.org, there's a whole list of those on on their site. They also have, you know, a, a section of links and that you can check for, say, places to play online. In addition, um, and. We also have a local web page, which I'm in the process of updating, which is OregonGo.org. And that has the the listings of local meetings. In addition, it'll have the uh, like the tournament, which we're going to have in October, I think it is, of this year. And that information will, will go up there reasonably soon, I hope. And these are... For I guess for for newcomers they're they're kind of like entirely welcoming to newcomers too. Just people saying like, yeah, I heard about this. I kind of want to check it out. Right, right. Newcomers are absolutely welcome. I say that as you know the the official head of the the Portland Go Club. However, I also can't be responsible for every you know player's willingness to play beginners. Usually people are pretty good about it, but you know we do have one or two players who just sort of considers themselves above playing a new player, and uh, you know we we just try and shun those people who don't treat new players well. But generally, people are are very willing to play new players. Well, that's where th- that's where throwing pint, empty pint, pint glasses come in handy. Right. The biggest problem I think with new players is that we don't have enough new players. Mm-hmm. That you know the new players will come in. And then they'll play some of the people that are equivalent to a black belt and then... Get smoked and disappear. Right. And then they, they get frustrated or or they get good enough to stick around and, you know, are interested enough to get good at, at it and mm-hmm. stick around. 
So at least, um, but at least it, the opportunity and the openness is there, which yeah, which helps. Yeah, and I think anybody there should be willing to to teach somebody who you know, we 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 definitely have taught many people who have just wandered by the club and just expressed an interest to play. You know, teach them rules. There's only a few rules, and they're they're quite simple to learn. And you know, th- this is one of the things between go and chess is that you know the pieces are all the same there's no special move between any of the pieces and you know once you once you know that you don't you can you, know, you can play both sides and you you have all the pieces working together mm-hmm. and so yeah it's it's quick to learn there's there's one of the sayings about it is minutes to learn lifetime to master and I'm I'm still working on the mastering part. I have I have a book that says you know ten days to master Go, and I think that's that's very much overly optimistic. And you got you got to sell it one way or the other. You do, yes. Going back to the I should say um, for congresses, how often do the congresses happen around Portland Metro versus Cascadia versus like the Pac Northwest? Or, or the, does it kind of like just alter, you know, just kind of randomize every year bouncing around um, North America? Well, the biggest problem is finding some place to host it. Okay, yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, we did have it here in Portland in 2000. Or sorry, I'm sorry, 2008. And then we had it in Salem. I think the last time in Salem was uh, maybe the late 80s. Really? Yeah. Wow. And that was one of the early ones. Um, but what they try to do is they try and go back and forth between the coasts to try and make it fair. And sometimes then they've they've had one they've had them in the middle of the country, you know, every once in a while. But it's, since there's a lot more players on either end of the either end of the country, then it's easier to get people to host. That's true. There, I wonder if they do anything like kind of like a Gen Con thing where you know show up in Indianapolis, which is which splits the difference. Yeah, well, they've had they've had some in in uh, Chicago and Houston, and uh, they well they had one in New Mexico a long time ago, but that's kind of in the yeah, yeah <laughs> geography. I'll, yeah, it was, uh, always try to hold uh, always try to host your massive uh, cross country gaming event in a town that that also sports a major airline hub. Yes, that is a good idea. So yeah, they. they Bounce those back and forth, and you know people people can get burned out. I think a couple of people just sort of stopped playing after we we hosted here and and uh, and, but we we try and get it. They've gotten better at supporting it, I think. And I I haven't been able to to go since two thousand eight, just because it turns out to cost a lot of money to fly out to these places every year and you know buy a few hundred dollars worth of books. Probably the books are not required if you're going, but uh, but it, it can still add up. Gotcha. So for a neophyte, first time, you know, as a first time player, you know, early player, where could you recommend going from here, or um, either locally or online? Well, I, I would recommend going to one of the clubs. To learn the rules, I think that's the simplest way to learn the rules and the and the basics of it, and to, to show it. Once you've got a sense of how the game is played, you can go to some of the online servers and you can 
play people online, I think some of the people there will have the same attitude of a few of them will not want to play any, any beginners. But uh, there are also a lot of bots these days that are just, you know, computers that are plugged into the various online gaming, you know, uh, online servers that you can just request a game from and you can play them and they will be of varying levels from, you know, kind of ridiculous to incredibly strong. Hmm. And they're almost always willing to play a person. Mm, funny how that works. Yeah. Okay. And I'm trying to think of, I think that pretty much wraps it up. I can't think of anything else um, that, you know, we've covered a lot of ground, everything from, you know, introduction to the game to, you know, visual looks to history to, you know, worldwide history to even like, you know, local and national and continental examples of it. Can you, can you think of anything we've that we have missed so far this evening? Uh, no, I, I think the, uh, the Portland Go Club has been around for some 40 years now, and it's been, you know, continuous. I've been... I've been the head of it for about 15, 16 years now. And yeah, we're, we, we've actually, we're one of the, one of the stronger, stronger clubs in the country because of the, the, the number of people that we have that are, that are actually registered. Mm -hmm. And we've also been doing something for the past, uh, past eight years of bringing in a professional for a workshop that, you know, helps, helps promote go in this area and helps you know bring everybody up and give them an opportunity to play against a really strong player okay which you know they don't always have got to spar at some point yeah yeah is the um how does the portland scene compare to say you know either seattle or san fran well san or Fr i guess even los angeles for you know for that matter yeah San Francisco and uh, probably San San Francisco and Los Angeles especially have have a lot more people, That's so true. you know they they tend to have a stronger groups. And I think also I, Seattle, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I know that San Francisco and Seattle, I think each have at least one professional that lives in that area. Mm -hmm. So that makes it a lot easier to you know have stronger players, you know that. And people to get stronger, you know. Seattle has its own ghost center. I'd mentioned Kiaro Iwamoto before, and he had helped fund the Seattle Ghost Center. So they actually have a building where you know that is that is dedicated to it. So they also have very strong players who go to their club. Yeah, you know, there's there's at least one seven don amateur I think that goes there, and yeah. So so. People have a lot more opportunity there to to get strong. We've had we've had have a few um, let's see five don six don you know people people come and go. We've had a few few people who live in the area and don't necessarily come to the club all the time, mm -hmm. you know, but but have come once or twice and just are just phenomenally strong amateurs. But we don't have a professional player who actually lives in the area, despite my inviting as many as I can think of to. To come and live here but uh yeah so it's it's a good club but you know not not as big as some of the really big cities right well we yeah we are what we are yeah yeah 
So I get Portland. I guess we have to. We got to. We got. We still need to hustle. We 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 still need to hustle, and we're working on it. And we one of the things that uh, one of our members uh, has been doing is is doing a lot of outreach in schools. And I think when when those kids grow up, you know, there's there's a lot of them that have been really interested, and they've been actually doing uh, promotional uh, tournaments with players, say in Mexico, they'll get on Skype or something and get on the the online Go servers and they'll actually play games, and and that that's been a wonderful opportunity to be able to do some of that stuff with with kids and and, and promote international Go as well. Excellent. Well, unless we have anything, I think we, we pretty much covered everything we can. So, um, if anybody has any questions, how can they reach you online? Well, the best way to reach me is probably to go to OregonGo.org, and you can you can reach me. My email address through there is well, actually, my email address there would be Glenn G L E N N at PortlandGo.org, and that will direct to me, and I will answer that. Excellent. And if you have any questions for me, uh, Jeremy, you can reach you can reach me here at the show uh, through Twitter at giving the mic, or email at giving the mic at gmail dot com. But I think we have, um, I think yeah, we have covered significant territory tonight, and I think that is all we have. So. Without any further ado, uh, thank you for listening, ladies and gentlemen. This has been quite a different subject. Um, I'm fairly confident there have not been that many Portland podcast episodes recorded specifically about Go. But we, we uh, knowing the city we live in, you can't really say that for sure. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll say what we can. I, I suspect there, there have not been any American or English-speaking podcasts that have been recorded exclusively about Go. But, you know... We'll see. We'll see. All right. Thank you for listening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, again, uh, yeah, like I said, you know how to contact us. Uh, like, review, and subscribe. Except I'm not really on any networks yet. We can do that yet. So it's kind of a, uh, I guess it's a false request. But thank you for listening and good night. Thanks for everything. Thank you. All right, that's it for another episode of Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. I'd like to thank my guest, Glenn. If you'd like to get a hold of Glenn, you can reach him on Twitter at Grey Enigma, spelled G-R-E-Y-A-E-N-I-G-M-A. If you'd like to send questions, comments, and whatever about the show, reach us on Twitter at Giving the Mic or uh, at email, givingthemic at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. I'll see you soon.